Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Gary Clark, author of Unlikely Viking, from the DC projects to rural Nebraska. Gary Clark currently is the executive director of the Greater Fremont Development Council in Fremont, Nebraska. Prior to that role, he worked in a variety of economic and community development roles around Nebraska, Florida, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. Gary received his Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from Dana College in Blair, Nebraska, and his Master of Science in Urban Studies and Public Administration from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Gary was inducted into the Dana College Hall of Fame for track and field in 2010, holding 11 records, the most ever in the school's history, and was the college's first male national champion. Gary's memoir, Unlikely Viking, from the DC projects to rural Nebraska, recounts his transformative journey from a disadvantaged, dangerous childhood in the nation's capital to the unexpected opportunities of the rural Midwest. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Why don't we start with the title of your new book, Unlikely Viking. What is a Viking in this context and why unlikely? Well, a Viking in this context is uh, representative of Dana College Vikings out of Blair, Nebraska. Uh, that was our, our name, the Vikings. And so uh, unlikely because of my journey and uh, the very chance opportunity that I uh, received to attend Dana College. It was uh, not guaranteed. Uh, it was a surprise, to say the least, for me. And it was very unlikely that I would have taken that route um, at that uh, perceived time in my life. So. so this seems to suggest that in its own way, that moment, that period of time in in Blair at Dana College mm -hmm. was this pivotal point, this transition from a life before to this life in the Midwest. Yes. So it seems that before we talk about your experience at Dana College then, we mm -hmm. really need to jump back to the beginning. Yeah. So yeah. why don't we start from the beginning and tell us about your childhood? Well, I grew up in Washington, D.C., as, as the book states, and uh, I grew up in a place uh, in northeast Washington, D.C. Um, we also uh, lived in southeast Washington, D.C., and uh, before coming to Nebraska, yeah, I, I started out early. Um, actually, was born at Howard University Hospital. Most of my family live in the Washington, D.C. area. But both my parents were very young when they had me, and they struggled through addiction. And we actually lived in uh, a couple of places, uh, Shipley Terrace, southeast uh, D.C., and Brooklyn Manor, which is in, uh, called Brentwood, now gentrified, so or becoming gentrified. Some of the old relic buildings you, you might not see now, but uh, definitely public housing. Both my parents struggled at that time. We were homeless several times. We uh, would generally get kicked out of our home if we, uh, we were evicted often. Um, so moved around quite a bit, uh, dealt with uh, both my parents having deep addiction issues um, and 
And so that was the rough upbringing that I speak of in the book. And I kind of give people the ins and outs of that experience as a child. From my early upbringing, age five, all the way up to getting to Dana. It's just that long journey of ins and outs, dealing with uh, parental units who had difficulty uh, shaking addiction. What particular instances do you recall from your childhood that perhaps are indicative of how you were shaped and influenced by your childhood? A couple of key points came to mind, and I would say specifically uh, just living in the neighborhood life on 14th Street is where uh, we lived in Brentwood. And I talk about the fact that this was kind of a, a street that turned like curved like a bow. And so there were apartment buildings and complexes surrounding our small apartment building. And so when I would step outside in my neighborhood, I would see everything. I would see uh, people who were hustling, selling drugs, or I would see kids playing right across from that. Um, I was in one or two drive-by shootings as a young kid just because we were playing tackle football on a field. And, and so I had those experiences that made it clear to me that something was off about where I was living and that um, something was off about uh, the experiences that people were having the struggles that people were having. There was some reason behind this, and as a kid, I knew that I needed to uh, figure that out. I needed to understand where I set foot there. Now, if you talk to my my mother, she'll say, you were always a different child, and that you you didn't fit in to this, (laughs) is what she would say. And so, um, you know, I own that that difference, that feeling of, of being different, but I also understood that most people um, in our community at that time, they needed something better than what they had. And I was no different than those people in that respect. But I think what stuck out mostly was the struggles that I saw adults going through and kids. I saw kids acting as if they were, were adults at that time. And then I realized that I also had a gift. And that's one thing that came out of my early childhood. And I owe that to both my parents, but definitely my father was pushing me um, to be a runner at that time. And so I had those opportunities early on. You mentioned seeing in the experiences of people around you that something was off. That, That was the expression you used, something was off. And I wonder if beyond the confines of what you could perceive socially as a child, Mm -hmm. if you had a different frame of reference, some other form of interaction, whether it was with people or with the media or with some other form of social norm Mm -hmm. that gave you a counterpoint to the life that you were experiencing. Yeah, I would have to say it was uh, television mostly. You know, I watched uh, The Cosby Show. I watched A Different World and all of those other shows that were uh, African-American-centric at that time because that's what my family watched, you know. Um, but I also watched uh, the old uh, school shows. I'm, I remember watching uh, uh, The Andy Griffith Show <laughs> and things like that. And I just remember always thinking, well, how does this Cosby family have this nice brownstone house and 
their dad's a doctor and everybody's in the house. They're dancing and having a good time all the time. When they step outside, there's no one around. <laughs> People aren't outside all times of the day. So I realized early on by watching those shows. And, uh, and every once in a while, we would get a glimpse into the fact that we live near the White House. Right? We live so close to uh, this different lifestyle. And I think as a kid, because of being in elementary, it was a quick visit for elementary kids to go to the monuments or to go to uh, Washington, D.C., downtown areas. And one specific instance that I write about in, in the book is uh, uh, in elementary school, we got a chance to visit. It's called the Red House at this time because they have red house and different colors. They're all white houses, <laughs> right, downtown D.C. Uh, at any rate, this was a na national uh, champion team, NBA team. Detroit Pistons had just won the championship, and they were letting elementary school kids come and visit them. So it was a press conference. They all stand up, and we're the select elementary school team or group that gets to go there. And I attended Lucy Diggs Slow Elementary in Northeast D.C. I get to see Isaiah Thomas. Dennis Rodman, Joe Dumars, and, you know, that exposure to basketball at an early age, I think I fell in love with hoops at that point, but I also realized there was something very different and unique about uh, different areas that I was able to witness on television and in person. I realized that our neighborhood wasn't the norm, so to speak, that there were other norms out there and there were other opportunities. And so uh, just those little experiences, those little opportunities to have a window outside of your own community uh, was impactful for me. Rough. Jump around, grab a rebound, and pump the sound. Big raw, big man's in town. Razzle, razzle, yo, and I dazzle. Or should I say dunk? Dunk like Jordan, I pump. Pump, double, pump, double, platinum, me yo. I'm taking up to the loop until it's time for me to go. So I suggest you sit back and check my flow, you know. Give it up, pass it up. I'm about to score a three-point play. Can't you hear the crowd roar? It's over, it's over, time's up, and yo, I'm outie. Packed up, macked up, got my... So what was the first moment then when instead of just being aware of that, you were able to step into mm. some other kind of dynamic for your life, whether that was your own choice or your parents' choice for you? Uh, the initial moment would have been uh, my mother was on the streets and we had been evicted and my father was uh, doing time in prison uh, for, I couldn't tell you exactly what it would have been, but um, at that point in time, they had to find somewhere for me to go and for my older sister to go. And I had an aunt and uncle who were actually living in New Carrollton, Maryland, and they were just starting their family. They had a, a son, and uh, it was my father's sister, and she agreed to take me in for that year. Um, and New Carrollton was basically a little bit more affluent uh, a little bit more diverse, and I attended a school with white kids who I hadn't seen ever in my life, and this was fifth grade year. So in fifth grade, I was exposed to diversity that I hadn't seen before other than on television, um, people I hadn't touched before or, or been around, 
and I lived in a single family home that wasn't public housing for a year. And I ran into a book that changed my life, um, Maniac McGee, which was uh, a book that someone put in my lap. And I was terrible at school at this time. I missed my parents dreadfully. I missed my older sister. I wasn't able to go where she went with our other family. And I just remember uh, drowning myself into that book. But I wasn't a great kid at that point in time. I was still wrestling with a lot of issues. But I got to see this new experience, that people lived in these nice neighborhoods and that uh, school wasn't a place of terror because I might get in a fight. Um, But uh, it was actually a place of hope and opportunity. And that was actually the first year where I had excelled in track and field, and I took that on. Um, So that was, fifth grade was a pivotal moment outside of my community. Could you just give us a brief uh, primer on Maniac McGee? Yeah, so I mentioned Maniac McGee, uh, and it's actually a book that talks about a young orphan uh, child, and his name is, his nickname is Maniac McGee. Um, and he actually ends up uh, traveling between two communities, and he's, he's on the street, and he's in elementary school, so I could relate with that. Um, also, he's a white kid, and he has holes in his shoes, his clothes aren't kept up well, but he has this incredible gift, or several of them. He's extremely quick, um, he's sharp-witted, and he's also uh, got tons of talent and, and, and charisma. So he goes from the all-black community to the all-white community, he ends up living with an all-black family, and fall in love with the family, and uh, it was my story, so to speak, and I felt that. And so while I was going through that, I was lucky to run into that book. And this book was about diversity and how difference doesn't really matter, and it's not really uh, something that's uh, realistic. It's almost man-made when we talk about these things. And so that he was having heartfelt experiences with an African-American community that he wasn't able to have in his own community. That spoke volumes to me as a kid, um, away from his family, away from everything he knew. And uh, yeah, it it stuck out for me. By the end of this year that you've talked about, were you frightened or worried about returning in some way to the experiences that you'd had before? Yeah, I I would say, Stuart, I was still a kid. And so at the root of me, at the heart of me, I, although I cherished that opportunity, I couldn't see it at that time. I couldn't see it for the gift and the opportunity that my, my Aunt Regina had given me and my Uncle Kyle had given me. And so I wanted to go back to that community because I knew my mother was there. And my father wasn't out of prison yet. So... I just knew that I wanted to be close to something that was mine and that was me. Although I feared going back, I ended up going back and living with our upstairs neighbors, uh, the Bray Fletcher family. And they took me in for another year. So it was about a two, almost three year period of living with people not my parents or, or what have you. And so um, in that time, I was excited to get back. 
But then when I got back, it wasn't what I thought it would be. And as a kid, um, you think you know better, but you, you don't. <laughs> and although the Bray and, F and Fletcher family, they were a godsend for me because they took care of me like I was their own, um, I would only see my mother on the street and we would interact that way. Um, it still wasn't being back with my family. But that sixth grade year turned out to be my first year of organized track and field. Um, I won every race I ran that year, although I avoided a club team in that summer. Um, I still had to see my mom on the street and she eventually started to get clean maybe the year after that. Um, started to see my father slowly as he had come out of prison. So around that time, uh, although it was a difficult shift, I wasn't afraid to go back at that time um, because I was afraid of losing my parents. I wanted to see them. I thought if I was around them, maybe that would save them. I'm not sure if this is a good segue to ask about your parents' journey in this give us some sort of snapshot update, as it were, about how your parents kind of emerged through this time. Yeah, so uh, my mother had a uh, crack cocaine addiction, and um, it was very difficult for her to get loose of that. And around this time, I was graduating elementary school at Lucy Diggs Slow Elementary, um, and my mother was going into treatment. So she spent maybe my last year in elementary school and then into my seventh grade year um, in treatment and getting clean and going through that process. My father has always been a functional addict um, for all of my life. So I never really knew my father had an addiction issue my whole adolescence until maybe the latter portion of that high school career. Um, uh, and, and later on in, in life, he would tell me that when I was in another room, he might be in another room getting high and trying to keep it as quiet as possible. Um, but he was able to put on that, that front, you know. And um, while they were struggling at that period, I had gone to live with my father in Tacoma Park, Maryland. That kind of turned into... My, my dad had a few girlfriends, and so <laughs> it, it started to turn into an opportunity where if he had a girlfriend, we might live with them and, and their family. And so it was kind of a, a movement of, of places and different schools um, and opportunities. But at this point in time, my parents definitely, they were coming out of, or at least my mother was coming out of her addiction. And by my seventh grade, eighth grade year, she uh, was clean. And she's been clean ever since. Uh, and she's been doing uh, some great work in the D.C. area, uh, taking care of people who are addicts and, and transporting them to point A to point B, taking care of homeless folks from point A to point B. So she's definitely the strongest woman I know to go through that. And she takes care of everyone that she knows. Did it conjure for you, elicit from you, negative sentiments for your parents that you've had to spend some time reconciling uh, as you've gone through your own life? Yeah, I would say that even this book, Unlikely Viking, has been 
uh, cathartic for me, you know, to write and uh, and to go into details with my parents about, you know, uh, to be able to publish something this personal with their stories involved and engaged. Um, it took us having heart to hearts. My mother, for for quite some time, uh, has not been able to remember cer- certain pieces of her story, and I would say, you know, if I was in her shoes, that would happen to me as well. And there are certain things that I may not remember because of the nightmare that it may have been to me and my psyche. And so uh, we wrestle with that still. But um, to this day, um, I've never held deep resentment for what took place. I expect that those experiences that we have as people, um, they shape us, whether good or bad. And so if someone asked me, would I, if I could do it again, would I pick different parents? I'd say no, because I don't know what I would have turned out to be. (laughs) And you could have the best parents in the world and come out to be uh, one of the worst uh, people in civilization, you know. So I'm thankful for my parents as they are. And today I will say that we, they're probably two of my best friends. We talk every day. And even if they're going through their battles and I'm going through my battles, we can do it together. And so I think that's the beauty of this journey is that we didn't lose each other. And a lot of people lose their parents. Um, they lose their lives or they lose, lose their place or their freedom. And for me, I'm lucky. I can call my mom right now or I could look on the screen and she might be watching right now. Um, and they were not fearful of me telling their story, which was, I mean, that was helpful. So at this point then, you've had these childhood experiences, there have been difficult situations. You've experienced aspects of life outside of your familiarity and your comfort zone. Bring us forward to this point where you're moving closer to leaving DC and these urban experiences and finding yourself in a pretty small rural Nebraska town. Mm-hmm. So uh, just fast forward, um, senior year, I had an opportunity to go to American University in Washington, D.C. They started to come to every cross-country meet that I had due to uh, a friendship that the coach had with uh, Angela Bossy, which was my cross-country coach. Now, Stuart, I never ran cross until my senior year. I didn't specifically run track and field and until my senior year. So this was all brand new. And uh, I struggled with the entry exam, uh, getting the right scores for a full scholarship to American. And then they 
uh, the coach would call me every night my senior year, my, the second semester of my senior year. You're going to take that test. You're going to get this thing done. So there was a lot of pressure on me at that time. And I feared the end result being that I would be a bum or that I would be back in my old community or neighborhood and, and I would uh, revert back to what I had seen. So I had this huge fear and this anxiety that would manifest itself during testing. So at the end of that period, it was too late to get the scholarship, the full scholarship. And a partial wasn't going to get me any closer, even with uh, state assistance. My mother, who is clean for quite some time at this point, comes in. She's working at a rec department, and she has two pamphlets. One that says, Dana College, Blair, Nebraska, and another one that says, Midland College. At this time, it was Midland Lutheran College. And she said, they're sending kids here to play football. They don't usually send people to go run track or basketball, but they said, just call them, let them know what you've done in high school, and maybe they'll be interested. And, and so my mother sets this path for me to get to Blair, Nebraska. Dana calls every other day after talking to them once. And so Midland never calls for whatever reason. Um, and uh, so they give me a conditional acceptance to go to their school. And in August is when I was accepted. So this is really happening quickly, August of my senior year. Everyone else gone to college or they figured out where they're going. I'm thinking of ITT tech or I'm thinking of trade school or I'm thinking I'm going to work at Safeway or Giant grocery store. So my grandmother, who has since passed, uh, pays for my flight to Blair, Nebraska. And when I do uh, attempt to leave that day, my father's late picking me up because he has a friend who's also an addict late picking me up to take me to the airport. And the story's in the book, but we have to run through the airport to make it on that flight. First flight ever, sight unseen. Never seen Nebraska before. Wasn't quite sure where it was geographically. I just knew I was going to college and I wanted to go. I'm in a semester. Uh, there were all these fears, but when we started to approach Omaha, this is where <laughs> tears started to rain from my eyes because I wasn't seeing a big city because the approach was coming to the, to the farm area. Okay, so I'm just seeing farms, and I'm thinking, oh no, where am I going? I land at Epley in 1999 in August, and I wait for a gentleman to come get me from uh, Blair, and for whatever reason, it takes him an hour and a half or two. So I'm sitting at Epley in tears, and I don't know where I'm at, and uh, I just have a duffel bag because we couldn't afford to pay for... Uh, the rest of the stuff that I brought to the airport and we were late. Uh, when I arrived at Dana, I was not quite sure that I was going to make it. And I knew that. Um, and, but I had this relief, this sigh of relief that I had gone through this immense journey of confusion and uh, instability and when I saw the campus, I just thought, man, this is college. Like, this is my opportunity. 
and I had a lot of people who were betting on me to to do well and so um, I owe a lot of people for that success happening but at that moment I was I was more fearful of the unknown than leaving. You went to Downer College and you earned through mm-hmm. academic competence and with the support of mm-hmm. the college and the people around you, yeah. you, you earn an academic accreditation. Mm-hmm. And, and you made this transition out of strength and fortitude. And then there's this other stereotypical part is that you've also been talking about this athletic ability. Yeah. And I feel like that's the trope that is often wheeled out mm-hmm. about how one succeeds and breaks through. Yeah. This is what I'm trying to work through. I, I think Dana College in some ways was, again, another marker, milestone in your life where you demonstrated a degree of fortitude and talent mm-hmm. and resilience and capability mm-hmm. that I think is remarkable. But I also want to deal with maybe some of these stereotypes as well. Yeah. So I don't know, how, how would you describe this period in terms of it shaping you mm-hmm. and some of the reasons and causes and, and, and um, your ability to navigate this successfully? Yeah, I, I would say you're right about the fact that uh, in some ways it is stereotypical to say, hey, this kid's got talent and that's going to carry him to success. Uh, but I would say on the contrary that I was able to uh, kind of flex my academic muscle and that's actually what got me through. Um, I was, again, a provisional acceptance there. so. Um, if my GPA had slipped, I would not have stayed at Dana that first semester. I ended up actually getting a 3.9 GPA that first semester. And it was really uh, partly due to the fact that I did not want to go home. I knew that, this, <laughs> <laughs> I knew that this was going to be it for me. And um, um, track and field, actually, I was unable to run that first year because of my, my, my scores, I was right on the edge of being top 50% in my school, which was 500 students that graduated with me. I wish I had been from a small rural community of 21 students, and maybe I would have played or ran that year, but uh, that didn't happen. So I was a walk-on for Dana. They didn't give me a full scholarship. Uh, I still had uh, struggles making the payments that first year. My grandfather had to cut me a check from his social security to make sure that I didn't have to leave Dana that first semester. Um, So there were a lot of things that were more academic based that first year. I didn't have to show and prove that I was a talented runner or basketball player that first year. And, uh, you know, the second year, the second semester is when I flexed that athletic muscle um, but that was partly due to just a lot of people supporting me on, on the athletic team, the track and field and basketball. So I would, I would say that my experience was a little unique because I, although I had those talents and gifts, it wasn't clear that they would manifest themselves into uh, safety and security at Dana. Sugar, 
touch with a sound But your children laughing around you These are the makings of you It is true, the makings of you You seem to have made a point in your life of pushing yourself to the edge of what you know, to the edge of familiarity, um, past your comfort zone. Mm. And that seems to be a theme in terms of going to Dana College mm. and then living and working in various roles in rural Nebraska, given yeah. that your experience to this point hitherto mm. had been urban and gritty, shall yeah. we say. Why did you make the choices that you made to be a professional mm. and have careers in rural Nebraska? And how did you find those experiences? Yeah, uh, Nebraska has uh, been kind of a, an oasis of hope for me. And so uh, once I left Dana, I had an opportunity to run professionally. And instead, I took uh, the long uh, journey and I went to UNO with a full scholarship for graduate school. That pushed me to understand that uh, even early on as a kid, I wanted my community to change. And I used to pray all the time about that. You know, I used to pray, if I ever get out of this, please let me make some way to save people. Or, you know, I, I was a kid just thinking those big dreams. So it wasn't really extreme for me to see an opportunity in rural Nebraska, West Point, uh, Cumming County, rural Florida, actually, in Gainesville area, uh, Newberry, to say, you know, this is an opportunity. It's not a struggle that I'm going into, but an opportunity. And so when I got to Nebraska the second time around, uh, number one, there was so much support there for me to succeed. And number two, uh, it was the welcoming of my family. I knew what Blair had been for me, and I knew there was an opportunity to strike that, uh, that opportunity again in rural Nebraska. And so that's something that rural Nebraska has that no other place has in rural life itself, is that, that welcoming feeling, uh, that opportunity to contribute as a leader is so pivotal in rural places that they appreciate it so much more. Um, so I had a direct opportunity to tap into what I had prayed about when I was six or seven or eight in Washington, D.C., to directly impact people's lives. And uh, so rural life definitely saved my life because I don't know if I had a direction before I got to Blair. And then again, uh, on the second go-round, Cumming County, West Point, it provided me a platform to enhance my career. So regular listeners to the show will already be recalling the fact that you were a guest on the show about 18 months ago, uh, speaking to the theme of rural, and mm -hmm. we were joined at that time by Caleb from Ord mm -hmm. and uh, Scratchdown Brewing, mm -hmm. and uh, Kyle was calling in from Valentine. Valentine, yes. Uh, so... Obviously, I would encourage people to go back and listen to that show to hear a bit more about how you consider this mm -hmm. rural community. 
but you've shifted from West Point mm-hmm. and in between you've held another position that yes. related to community, but now you have this role leading the Economic Development Council in right. Fremont. Mm-hmm. And so I did want to ask a couple of questions about that, but maybe the first thing I should quickly do is ask you, what are you responsible for? Ah, good question. Uh, so I am the executive director at the Greater Fremont Development Council in Fremont, Nebraska. Uh, we are also partners with the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce Economic Development Partnership, so I support and work in both locations. My sole role is to help manage and operate the Development Council efforts in Fremont. Uh, we do that by trying to attract maintain and retain uh, businesses. Uh, We also do that by dealing with quality of life, so housing efforts. Um, uh, But we we do a full range of trying to help grow and sustain business opportunities in in Fremont, Nebraska. We were talking earlier about, so Fremont has this ordinance that requires landlords to Mm -hmm. uh, validate the legal immigration status Mm -hmm. of of residents. Mm So, so I'm wondering in that context, and we were talking earlier about how that kind of ordinance presents a certain image for Fremont and your decision to step into that community and take a role, which is all yeah. about yeah. raising awareness and stirring positive development in that mm-hmm. community. Yeah. And so what drove your decision? Yeah, I would say that, number one, the Greater Fremont Development Council gave me a clear opportunity to maintain and, and push my own career forward with with this being a great opportunity. Then there's the other side to it, you know, what people know about the ordinance. Obviously, it plays a part in the public assumption about what Fremont is. And so I did get calls from people saying, are you sure you want to do this or take this job? But in my mind, this is an opportunity. It's not a hindrance, right? And that's kind of something that's been a theme in my life. Uh, So when I got to Fremont, come to find out, this is as supportive a community as I've ever been in. Uh, The leaders are as diverse in hopes and opportunities as I've ever seen. Uh, The goals and impact and need for change in their community, uh, it rivals every other vibrant community in Nebraska and across the country. So yeah, the, the ordinance is something that is a sticking point of issue. And for me to say that I agree with that would be impossible for me to admit. But I will say this, that there are all kinds of laws that people pass that I disagree with, um, but that doesn't shape uh, the lives of the people that live there it doesn't make them uh, what that law has agreed to or allowed to happen. And I would say this, we have spent a lot of time in Fremont trying to change that narrative, uh, trying to push the true image of Fremont forward. And that's really been the opportunity. And, and even with the, the mayor of Fremont, even with the local downtown communities, I think all of those people realize that the true image of what Fremont is, is important to share with the public. And laws and ordinances as this is such, it makes it difficult because that's, that's the buzz, that's the trend, that's the big uh, piece of, of, of stories. 
but I will say this is it's more sensational to talk about the truth of Fremont and that the diverse population, uh, the immigrant population, has put so much economic impact in the community that this is a story that needs to be told, that the diversity of Fremont has been a benefit to them, not a hindrance. And so uh, you always have a faction of people who disagree, but um, I would say it's been the best professional move of my career to take this job, and you know I'm happy about that. We were talking earlier about this idea of comfort zone and stepping straight across that boundary into something completely new, and it, it seems as if you have made a point throughout your life of role modeling in many ways being the other. And so Fremont may have this ordinance, but that didn't stop you just stepping into it and in some ways declaring by your actions, I may be a minority in this situation, but I'm ready to take a leadership role and actually demonstrate there's, there's more to be done here. Yeah, I think you're, you're right on, Stuart. And, and another point that I tried to make earlier when we, before we got on is how can we as people be change agents or say we want change and we make these quotes and we give these, these pushes on social media and, and in our family dinners and whatnot about the impact of community and then to run away from challenges. I mean, I think it makes better sense to run to challenges. How do we show impact when we think there needs to be change if we're not willing to put ourselves in that place? and make that change. So I think change and diversity of thought, people, it permeates our lives. And so I've always been willing to dive in and try to make that impact. I wanted to explore the act of recording your life and the process of writing it down mm -hmm. in Unlikely Viking. And so let's just start with what motivated you to go through that maybe painful and difficult and cathartic effort of actually writing this memoir of your life? Huh. Oh, I always like to thank people uh, who inspire me. And I would say... Initially, it was my best friend from uh, Washington, D.C. area, uh, John Hernandez, um, who said, uh, G-Money, you need to write a story. <laughs> you need to tell your story. You're a national champion. You've done all of this stuff. Uh, and this was back in 2007. And then uh, my wife, actually, Tina, she actually said the same thing. So I had both of them uh, coming at me. It wasn't until I was a part of the uh, Sherwood Foundation's Rural Catalyst program where I actually made an effort to do it. And since I had an opportunity to 
take some time and some financing to focus on the book, I actually spoke to you um, about finding an editor, I remember. I don't know if you recall this. Uh, you gave me Mandy Maurer's name. And Mandy and I spent the next 18 months <laughs> diving through uh, my essays and my short uh, stories about my life. This was, a, this was a tough task. And Mandy will tell you that there were points where I was not responsive because I didn't want to wrestle with what I was writing. Even when we had the final draft, it took me a month to actually read it. Um, because I didn't want to wrestle with those issues. It was cathartic to write it, <laughs> but I just wanted to write it and push it off on someone else and let them deal with it. Um, and Mandy made sure that I realized that I had to, I had to go through that deep awakening. Um, and so that meant that maybe certain things I had written down, I hadn't actually wrestled with. And so... This was probably a book that I wrote for myself initially. And then once we got done, I realized that this was going to be a book that everyone could take a piece of it and they would find their own hope in it, hopefully. And so it's definitely a huge journey and mission to write your own memoir. Um, so kudos to anyone who's thinking about even becoming an author and special kudos to those people who actually get it done because it is not for the faint of heart. So now it is done and there is a mint condition copy sitting on the table between us as we speak. What are you going to do with it? This mint condition copy? <laughs> uh, the, the, book, the book generally. I'm just kidding. Uh, so the book is actually available. It's been available for four weeks now on Amazon. Um, it's also available on Barnes & Noble and then also on my website, which is clarkspeaks.com. And I send uh, signed copies to people who request them from my website. Uh, and I actually have a book signing coming up in the Omaha area and... Uh, the state at large so i think we should close with a special offer to listeners and i think that the first person that goes to the lives radio show instagram or facebook feed both of which are at lives radio show and answers the following question correctly will win a signed copy of the book. Ah. So the question, I think, you and I need to work out together, and then I will bleep out the answer. Okay. What do you think the question should be? Favorite basketball team, uh, favorite basketball player, most inspirational something? I'm not sure. Mm. Where, where, where? I, I think most inspirational <laughs> something would be uh, interesting. Hear responses. Okay. So, Yeah. I think that's that's what we should go with. So, um, who directed to me? I'm guessing. Who would be uh, my most inspirational author? Someone who I recognize as an inspiration and who might have inspired me to write this book. And I would say that um, this would be a very famous person. 
<laughs> to give a hint. <laughs> okay, so the question is, um, the most inspirational author that inspired him, and in particular, uh, this famous person, not only inspired him, but really prompted him to author the book, Unlikely Viking, which is the prize for the first person that on the Lives Radio Show Facebook feed or Instagram feed, which is at Lives Radio Show, manages to guess the correct answer, and they will win a signed copy of this really um, astonishing and um, evocative tale of transformation and, and hope and unexpected success. So with that, it leaves me just to thank you, Gary, for being on the show. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and, and just some of your thoughts about life in the world. Thank you very much, Stuart. I always appreciate the time to talk to you. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. Okay, Who, what's the answer? Well, I gotta turn this off first. <laughs> uh, it's actually... Uh... Oh! Yep. That's That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.